like to follow as I read from the scriptures. We're still in 2 Samuel 21. Second Samuel 21. And I'm going to read from verse uh, 5 through verse 7. And I've asked Neil Slater if he would ask God's blessing. Second Samuel 21 at verse 5. And they said unto the king, this is the Gibeonites, of course, who asked, David had asked, what can we do to make things right, if I can put it that way, with regard to those whom Saul had butchered. And they said unto the king, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the borders of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us. And we will hang them up unto Jehovah in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of Jehovah. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of Jehovah's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Let us pray. Our Holy Father God, we thank you for allowing us to come before your throne of grace. To acknowledge you as our Father, for we are your children. And you have bestowed such great love upon us. We thank you that we can be here this day. We know, God, that you are with the downtrodden. And you are the lifter of heads. We pray that you would be with us this day as we consider your word and you would bless us to be attentive to it, that we would store it in our hearts. We know that you have the heart of the king in your hand, and you will direct it as you are pleased. It was true with David and with Saul, and it's true now with all leaders of the world, and all things that happen in this world are according to your purpose, and for your good pleasure. And you are good always, O oh God. Comfort us and keep us. Bring us to a place of joy. Smile upon us, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Those of you that are usually with us, and we have a number of visitors, by God's grace, with us, I just would point out that I've been preaching through the life of David for some time, and we have outlines that we're asked to present to the office, um, not for approval, but just for guidance um, for the hearers. And I wouldn't be surprised, but what many of you know, that I don't follow my own outlines very well. Um, but I would point out to you today, and I'm thankful and appreciative of the, the teaching in Sunday school today about the leading of God the Holy Spirit, because as I was <clears throat> trying to tie things together, 
with regard to this message, um, I was led in a different way. And I do trust by God's grace that it was God the Holy Spirit leading me. And I'm looking at, at these uh, words in, in verse 7, not forgetting that the king said to the Gibeonites he would give them seven sons of Saul, but I'm looking at verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of Jehovah's oath that was between them, because David and Jonathan, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. I was reflecting, and I don't know if we do this very often. I confess that I don't believe that I do it very often as far as trying to get into the mind of these folk that we encounter in the scriptures. Perhaps we think that we can, perhaps the scriptures guide us in many time, in many occasions. But I ask myself and I would ask you, how often are we able to enter into the thoughts, to enter into the minds and the hearts of these people of whom we read and of whose lives we observe and look at in the scriptures, the inspired scriptures, those words that God the Holy Spirit has guided men of old to pen down for his people, for the church, for us to read and study. We hear this account read before us, the account of the Gibeonites, the account that begins with, there was famine in the days of David, three years. We hear this account read before us, and, and I just wonder what thoughts, if any, does it conjure into our minds, does it conjure up in our thinking? Can we imagine what the thoughts were that came to David as he was acquiescing in this Instruction, if you will, that the Gibeonites were giving to him about how to make things right. After all, he had asked them, what would you have me to do? How can I make things right that God will bless his inheritance because of you? How can we pacify? How can we satisfy? How can we propitiate God that he would allow rain to come down upon our land once again? Remember how David cried at the beginning of this chapter unto God. He sought his face. Why is this famine three years long? And we mentioned last week that we could ask David, why did you wait three years to pray? To seek the face of Jehovah. But nonetheless, God told him in unmistakable words, it is for Saul. It is because of Saul what he did to the Gibeonites. He broke that covenant that we read of in Joshua chapter 9 that Joshua and Israel had made with the Gibeonites. Never mind that the Gibeonites deceived them about where they were from. That they might set aside. That they might be able to set aside the command of God to destroy all the nations unto which they came. But they didn't seek God's face like we read of David doing here. They didn't seek his face and thus allowed themselves to be led astray. And they made this covenant. 
the leaders of Israel, Joshua and the others, they made this covenant with the Gibeonites. And Saul broke that. We don't read that recorded anywhere but here of what Saul had done. And this is from the lips of the Gibeonites themselves. Basically, he murdered many of our people. He desired to consume us for the zeal that he had for, for Judah and Israel. He consumed many of us. It was his intention, by all appearances, to completely destroy the Gibeonites. Well, they, they accepted this uh, ruse of the Gibeonites, Joshua and the other elders. And they made that covenant with them. And when they found out that they had been deceived, then they brought them in and made them servants. Servants carrying water and hewing wood for fires. Servants of the temple under Israel. And so there they were. And much time had passed. We're not told precisely how much, but much time had passed. And Saul inflicted this horrific slaughter upon them, <clears throat> seeking to consume them for his own purposes, whatever they may have been. It wasn't out of zeal for the Lord of hosts. He slaughtered many of them. So David asked, what would you have us to do? And they told him. In verse 4, it is no matter of silver or gold. We're not asking for any money. We're not asking for any payment in money at all. And they, they didn't want any land. It's, not, it's neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. It's not for us. It reminds us, does it not, of the Jews. Many years later, admitting to Pilate, I believe, that that they didn't have the right to execute Christ, and so they set him before the Roman governor to do their wishes. Here the Gibeonites say, it is not ours to put any man to death. But they wanted the man, they wanted his family to pay. They could have asked for 700 men, I suppose. They could have asked, David said, what is it? Tell me and I'll do it. But they told him, ask him, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto Jehovah in Gibeah of Saul. We will hang them up. We will slay them because of the blood that Saul spilled, breaking the covenant that had been made, a covenant that had been made in the name of Jehovah, in the name of the God of Israel. And that's the problem. But again, this is placed in the hands, if you will, of David, the king of Israel. What will you have me to do? And they told him. So now David is told what it is that will satisfy them and thus satisfy Israel's God. Give us seven men. We will slay them and hang them up before Jehovah. Give us seven men. Doesn't it make us think of of the times when a governor of a state has the opportunity, 
has the responsibility, has the burden of remanding a death sentence, of choosing life or death for a man incarcerated. Have you ever thought about those people? Sadly, it's usually so terribly politicized that we don't give much thought to the plight the, that governor is under, trying to make that determination, trying to make a righteous decision. Well, God has given, if you will, through the Gibeonites. He has laid this burden upon David. How is he to pick seven sons of Saul? We're not told how many sons of Saul, because it included grandsons as well. We're not told how many there might have been. Maybe he had 20 to select from. Maybe he had 50. Maybe he had 100. But the point is, how is he to select seven men and give them over unto death? Try to get into the mind of David that incredible burden that responsibility. What are the thoughts when we read such in the scriptures? What are the thoughts that come to our minds? One thought that comes to my mind immediately is I thank God that it's not me. It's another David that this was laid upon. Do we ever entertain questions about what may have been going on in their minds, in their hearts, in their thoughts over this? They are men and women like ourselves, are they not? Perhaps some are able to set Old, Te Old Testament saints aside somehow. We know large segments of professing Christendom are able to set Old Testament saints apart, but we're not able to do that. They are men and women like unto us, like unto ourselves. And the decisions needing to be made in this case cannot wait. He's got to give an answer to the Gibeonites. It's an interesting account. It seems like justice is being done here in this matter. Satisfying the Gibeonites' request. Saul had certainly done something terrible in breaking that covenant pronounced in God's name. It seems like justice is being done in the matter. The number seven even seems to be like a right biblical number. The Gibeonites are being rather nice about it, right? Does it not simply seem to us that, well, it all came out right in the end? At the end of the day, it was okay. I get so tired of hearing that expression at the end of the day. Well, when all is said and done, I rather like a brother in Christ years ago telling me when all is said and done, there's a whole lot more said than done. But we can't just sit back and say that everything came out all right. We know that it did because God, the Holy Spirit, was guiding David, was guiding his people. But to try to imagine David's thoughts. Shall I just grab the first seven sons of Saul that happened to walk by? No. Can't do that. 
How would we determine which seven sons of Saul should be handed over to death? We've been chosen in Christ. We learn from Paul's teaching in order that we are being conformed, that we are to be conformed unto the image of God's Son, of God's own Son, His only begotten. The Apostle tells us, Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Have this mind, he says, have this mind of Christ. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I'm not suggesting that this is a what would Jesus do moment. But it is a question, what does God say? What does the word say? What should David do and how should he do it? I believe that David wanted to show Mephibosheth the mercy that Jonathan, his father, and Saul's son had shown him. And they made a covenant. David was mindful at the same time of the covenant grace that he had received himself from God. God's covenant grace showered upon him. His covenant mercies. The covenant that he made with him. He remembered not only his friend Jonathan, but the covenants that they had made in the name of God, in the name of Jehovah their God, the God of Israel. The first thing that we learned then is that David spared Mephibosheth for the oath, the covenant that was between them, between David and Jonathan the son of Saul. And I submit that he remembered the covenant that God had made with him. He had in mind, I believe, God's wonderful covenant faithfulness to his promise. And how could he as a child of God, how could he as a man after God's own heart even think of ignoring the covenant that he had made in God's name with Jonathan so he spared Mephibosheth. And he remembered the covenant, mercy that he had received himself from God. He wished to be faithful in that. He might have even asked himself, now, how am I to be that man that I myself described in Psalm 15? How am I to be one who honoreth them that fear Jehovah? And one that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. How am I to be like that man? Certainly. Not by allowing myself to break that covenant between Jonathan and myself. Even though Jonathan's dead and has been for some time, I can't simply set that aside. And God has made promises to me. Promises is another word. For covenant many times. God has made many promises to me and he has kept them and I intend to keep that covenant, that promise that I made to Saul's son, Jonathan. In spite of my sin, in spite of my sin with Bathsheba, in spite of my sin in, in bringing about the death of her husband Uriah the Hittite, 
I'm not going to allow myself to be excused from keeping that covenant that I made with Jonathan, that I made with Jonathan under God. You remember those promises that God made through Nathan the prophet, those promises that we read of in chapter 7 of this book of Samuel, those glorious promises. David was of a mind to build a house to God, and God sent Nathan the prophet to tell him. We can begin at verse 11 of chapter 7. And as from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will cause thee to rest from all thine enemies. Moreover, Jehovah telleth thee that Jehovah will make thee a house. God covenanted. He promised to make David a house. I will make thee a house. You won't make me a house. I will make you a house. When thy days are fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee that shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He's going to establish the house of David. He's going to establish his kingdom. He does so setting up Solomon. But it was soon after that 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 was broken up between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And the house, you could say, was divided, and yet God, again, and the scriptures tell us that because of his covenant mercies toward David that he wasn't going to take every tribe away even though they had sinned grievously but he said he will build a, a house in his seed he will establish his kingdom but he says also and we read about David meditating upon this at verse 18 then David the king went in and sat before Jehovah and he said who am I O Lord Jehovah and what is my house that thou hast brought me thus far? And this was yet a small thing in thine eyes, O Lord Jehovah. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. For a great while to come. Like forever and ever. Everlasting unto everlasting. And this too after the manner of men. Seems to be speaking of the God-man. And what can David say more unto thee? For thou knowest thy servant, O Lord Jehovah. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou wrought all this greatness to make thy servant know it. To make thy servant know it. I believe in many. Others believe that God the Holy Spirit granted that David might be aware of what all this meant, this covenant promise that it was not just Solomon that was being spoken of. It was not just his temporal house, his physical house that God was covenanting with him about. But it was his eternal son, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God that he was speaking of. He was going to establish his house. And he's here promising. And David, of course, embraced that promise, that covenant. But he's also embracing the covenant that was made between Jonathan and himself. Perhaps you remember, perhaps you need to be reminded it's, it's, blessing. it's a blessing to remind ourselves of the love between Jonathan and David. It wasn't natural. 
It was a supernatural love. I don't know if any of us have experienced any such thing, not in, not in the height of this between Jonathan and David. I think we probably have all experienced since we were regenerated, there being something about someone. Something about this other person that just seems to enlarge them before our eyes. That we have something more in common with them than God's grace. There are other things that God has placed into our hearts that seem to bind us more tightly together. Even Jesus Christ had his Peter, James, and John, a special three. But Jonathan and David made a covenant. We read in 1 Samuel 18, and it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that is David, that the soul of Jonathan was knit, knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That's what I'm talking about. That's something that we don't generally experience. Our hearts being knit, and I trust that our hearts are knit to every believer because they're knit to our Lord Jesus Christ, our elder brother. But to experience this more deeply, that knitting, that we might love others, not just for the sake of Christ, but love them as our own souls. And Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his apparel, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. I believe that this pictured Jonathan's willingness to give up his right to the throne. Recognizing, and this is probably what stirred up his heart and what knit his heart to David's, that he recognized that this was the anointed successor of his own father for the throne. That's speculation, but I believe that's why he stripped himself of these things and gave them to David. But we read where Saul is chasing David before he actually begins chasing him. But when his eyes are beginning to look askance at David, he's beginning to feel that evil spirit that God sent to him. And he's beginning to feel it toward David. And he sees him as a rival. And he starts beginning to imagine ways of seeing David lose his life. But he spoke in 1 Samuel 19. And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should slay David. But Jonathan... Saul's son delighted much in David. They were covenant brothers. And they made a covenant that's recorded in the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel. And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the loving kindness of Jehovah that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when Jehovah hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, and Jehovah were required at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again for the love that he had to him and 
for he loved him as he loved his own soul. He caused David to swear to him that he would have kindness, show kindness, not only to Jonathan, which he never really had an opportunity to do, for Jonathan died with his father in Gilboa. But show kindness for my sake, for this covenant's sake, to my house. We see that they covenanted again. Remember that signal that Jonathan had arranged to give to David about whether he had learned if his father Saul was out to kill him or not. And he told him that he, would, uh, he was going out in the field and he was going to shoot. And if the arrows went past David, David's hiding place, that that meant, yes, Saul intends to kill you. As soon as the lad was gone, the lad that he had to go pick the arrows up and so on, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face toward the ground and bowed himself three times and they kissed one another until David exceeded, until David wept, knowing that he would never see him again. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of Jehovah, we have sworn, covenanted, sworn oaths in God's name, in the name of Jehovah, saying, Jehovah shall be between me and thee and between my seed and thy seed forever. This is what David was confronted with in his thinking wanting to honor the covenant that he had made with Jonathan in God's name, wanting to honor Jonathan for the love that he had for him and for his oath's sake. The two made a covenant again in 1 Samuel 23. They made a covenant, we're told, again before Jehovah. And you remember upon receiving report of the death under the hand of the Philistines at Mount Gilboa, the deaths of Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, that David made a lamentation in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. And his weeping was true and it was sure. And that's in 2 Samuel 2. But in 4.4, we read for the first time about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And how that when his father and grandfather had been slain on Mount Gilboa, that the nurse that took care of Mephibosheth when he was five years old were told that she was fleeing. They assumed, they expected that the Philistines would soon be upon them and they were running away. And she dropped Mephibosheth. Doesn't tell us precisely what happened, but from then on he was lame in both of his feet. He was lame in his name was Mephibosheth. After David was established on his throne, after he was king over all Israel, I don't think that it's like the Joseph's butler that, oh, I just remembered something. I don't think it's like that. But nonetheless, he asked, he inquired, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And he was told by Ziba, the servant of Saul, he was told about Mephibosheth. And so David sent. He called him, sent for him. The king called Mephibosheth to come to him, to come and reside with him and eat at his table. 
What a picture of grace. David said unto him, Fear not, I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Does this not echo the promise of God's son to his people? He bids us to the marriage supper of the Lamb, does he not? Our Lord Jesus Christ. The meal is prepared. And Jonathan was David's friend. And Jesus Christ is the friend of publicans and sinners, we read in the scriptures. And were many of us not much worse than tax collectors and other sinners. We certainly were all sinners. Needing a mediator, needing a savior, needing a friend, and we have that friend in our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see David's decision to be made, which sons of Saul shall I hand over to the Gibeonites? We are told, and we've already looked at that, about some of those men, some of those individuals that had uh, not treated David so well when he was fleeing from Absalom. Remember Shimei casting stones and dust at him and cursing him and calling him, oh, bloody man, accusing him of stealing Saul's throne and so on. And there are people that think, there are writers that believe that he, this was a reference and this helps us to put a time on it, if it is so, that this is a reference to him giving these seven sons of Saul over to the Gibeonites. If in fact David had done that before that rebellion of Absalom, it may be the case that he was calling him a bloody man because he handed over seven of Saul's sons. We don't know that for certain. But most writers, when they look at Mephibosheth coming back after David's victory over Absalom, his son, and quenching that rebellion, and they see, they read of David welcoming, of Mephibosheth coming to him. And we've already been told that Ziba, that servant, when David was fleeing, had come to him with some mules with food and provender and and skins of wine and animals that they might have something to ride, in particular David's family. And when David asked, where's your master? Where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't he here? And Ziba told him that his master Mephibosheth told him that this is the time that the kingdom, the people will restore the kingdom to me. Now, most writers think that was an all-out lie that Ziba told for his own advantage. So then after the battle and when David comes back, when he's coming back, on his way back, some of these men meet him. He forgives Shimei. At least he tells him 
You shall not die, even though you are so wicked. You shall not die. But when he sees Mephibosheth, what does he do? He asks Mephibosheth, where were you? I could have used you. Why weren't you here? Mephibosheth tells him, my servant said I will saddle, or he said I will saddle me an ass that I may ride on and go with the king because thy servant is lame. And he has slandered, that is Ziba, has slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. Ziba slandered him. And he, uh, he put a hindrance in his way of being able he took the ass for himself and left that lame Mephibosheth without any way of going to David. And David let it go, if we can use that terminology. But interestingly, he divides the land between Ziba and Mephibosheth, suggesting that maybe he didn't, didn't believe Mephibosheth in everything that he said. But there are some folks that have done much less kind to Mephibosheth. I've enjoyed the writings of a Scotsman uh, from the 19th century, Alexander White. He's written books on the characters, Bunyan's characters. And I've enjoyed them over the years. This man writing on John Bunyan's allegory Pilgrim's Progress and speaking, having short messages about buy-ins and short messages about looking both ways and those names that Bunyan gives to his characters. And I found many of them very helpful and if not immediately helpful, enjoyable. He's also written characters of the Bible, of the Old Testament, of the New Testament. And he's written about Mephibosheth and I honestly confess that I couldn't believe what he was writing about Mephibosheth. He tells us that the sacred writer, I'd rather he had admitted to himself that it was God the Holy Spirit inspiring the scriptures, but he says the sacred writer tells us Mephibosheth's story from the outside, from the outside and on the surface. Now it's possible. But he says that he so leaves us to make of the inside of it what we can. Has God ever, ever left us to make of the inside of any other person what we can? Has he allowed us to pretend that we can read somebody else's mind? That we can know someone else's heart? I couldn't believe this man writing that. He seems to think that the Holy Spirit has left it unto us to read the heart of Mephibosheth. I don't think so. He goes on to say about this interview between, between Mephibosheth and David. He says, our English language is unjust to Mephibosheth or else it has taken his infirmity in his feet much too seriously. He was not so crippled in his intellects or in his thinking or in his cunning. I'm saying that, but that's what he means by in his intellects at any rate as to stay in Jerusalem till the king came home. 
He was too eager for that to congratulate the king. We all know how the mind overmasters the body. Mind over matter. It makes us forget all about its lameness on occasions. And Mephibosheth was at the Jordan all the way from Jerusalem almost as soon as Shimei himself, White suggests. Nor had he taken any time to make himself decent for such a journey. Such was his joy that the king was coming back again to Jerusalem. Yes, but. And White goes on, putting words into Mephibosheth's mouth. My Lord, said Mephibosheth. And White says, but the tail was as lame as the tail bearer. He says Ziba had stolen his ass just as he was mounting him to come with the king and so on. David did not stoop to ask whose ass this was that Mephibosheth had got saddled so soon this morning as though simply because he could be there at this time. He shouldn't have had any hindrance to be there when David was fleeing. That's not logical at all. But this man is pretending to know Mephibosheth's heart and mind. And it was sad to read that. He told David, let Ziba take it all. And White says, with what extraordinary and saintly sweetness. Sarcastically, White says that. Mephibosheth received the overtartness of the king. Let Ziba take all. And White continues, no, there was nothing cripple in his intellects. Read, read their cunning again. And he quotes another minister of Scotland. I find no defect of the wits in Mephibosheth. Sarcasm again. That cunning, assuming that this was all deceit on the part of Mephibosheth. And he goes on to say, in poor Mephibosheth's case, it would seem as if his early and lifelong infirmity, taken along with the hopeless loss of his brilliant prospects, had all eaten into his heart till he became, this is Alexander White, till he became the false, selfish, scheming creature that David found him out to be. Well, number one, David didn't find him out to be that. We don't read that anywhere. And certainly Alexander White didn't read it anywhere. Has not our Savior and our Lord bid us to think charitably of one another as best that we may? Has not the Apostle taught us that? If we're going to walk in step with the Spirit as we were taught this morning, are we not to follow this guidance? Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not provoked, taketh not account of evil. Thinketh no evil. Alexander White was guilty of thinking evil about Mephibosheth. Rejoiceth not in unrighteousness, but rejoiceth with the truth. 
David, it would seem, was willing to wait for more truth to be brought into his ears. Rejoiceth with the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. We use this philosophy, if I can call it that, or, or this guidance, even in, in our membership, even in, in those that come among us and desire to stay among us. We don't catechize them, except in Sunday school, perhaps. But we, we don't investigate them. We don't try to search them out. They express faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We take them at their word. We believe all things until we see otherwise. As Peter saw in the behavior of Simon. But we believe all things and that's what we're taught to do. We don't think evil of others. And we certainly don't imagine that we can get into their minds and hearts. Be of the same mind, having the same love. In lowliness of mind, counting others better than ourselves. Not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. I don't know what Alexander White was looking at. I honestly don't. But he wasn't being charitable, that's for sure. And I believe, again that David was considering in particular two very important things that he had been taught because of God's behavior toward him. God chastened him, yes, but in mercy and love. Mercy and love was at the top of David's thoughts because of how God had mercifully treated him. David would look at Mephibosheth from that same perspective that God had looked upon him with. He would desire to think no evil of the son of one whose heart was knit together with his own. And he would recall God's covenant faithfulness to his promises that he had made to him. And he would seek to imitate God's faithfulness toward Jonathan's son and show him the kindness that Jonathan had shown him. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank Thee. For Thy Word, we thank Thee. For the truth, we thank Thee, especially for Him who is the truth Himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. O oh Lord our God, we ask that through Thy Word, by God the Holy Spirit Himself, that Thou would bind us tighter unto Thyself today than yesterday and less than tomorrow. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction, it's taken from Psalm 89. Psalm 89 at verse 15. 15 through 18. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They walk, O Jehovah, in the light of thy countenance. In the name, in thy name do they rejoice all the day. And in thy righteousness are they exalted. 
For thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. For our shield belongeth unto Jehovah, and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Amen.